From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to the show. I'm Ashley Coaches, and you're listening to Terra Informa. I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we have a very exciting and unique documentary about a great escape. You heard that correctly. This week is about a great escape. Who's doing the escaping, you might ask? Myrtle and Charlie the Elephants. That crazy story is coming up right after some environmental headlines. Amanda Rooney here with your environmental news headlines. Starting today, a U-Pass, which is the University of Alberta's transit pass, can be used for travel between the Edmonton International Airport and the Century Park LRT station. Edmonton Transit Service has operated the bus route 747 since 2012, which travels between Century Park and the airport. Use of the service requires a $5 fee, and ETS transfers or monthly passes can't be used to access the service. Now, a valid U-Pass can be used, allowing post-secondary students to use the route. The expanded service announcement comes from a growing partnership between the Edmonton International Airport, the City of Edmonton, and the City of Leduc. Quote, we are very interested in testing this initiative, said Tara Kongsgrud, a City of Edmonton Transit Projects communication advisor. We are not sure what to expect, end quote. Since 2007, U of A students pay a mandatory fee for a U-Pass which allows students to access public transit. The fee, which will be $148 in the 2018-2019 term, is renewed every four years through a referendum. Other institutions like McEwen University also provide a U-Pass for their students. However, until now, students have not been able to use the U-Pass to take the 747 to the airport and have had to pay the $5 fee. The total annual cost to provide the 747 service is approximately $1.78 million. Leduc County will contribute $3,300,000 towards the operation of Route 747 from May to December, while the City of Edmonton continues to provide the rest. 48% of the costs are provided through fares and 60% through taxpayers. Between April 2016 and March 2017, an average of 500 people per day use the bus service, according to Kongsgrud. The U-Pass expansion service will be a year-long pilot project. Factors like demand and hours of operation will be studied carefully. The opening of the Edmonton International Airport premium outlet collection has led to a greater interest in traveling to the airport. The service will continue from now on, but is expected to present an update to City Council next May. That's all the time we have for headlines this week. And now it's time to jump into this week's episode. Anthony Goritz is one year into his master's degree, and he stumbled on the following story during a field trip to the William Rowan lab with his creative nonfiction writing class. As soon as he heard the story of the behemoth skull that has rested in the lab for 92 years, 
he ran straight to CJSR offices and pitched them the story. This is the great escape. It's 1938, San Francisco. With ropes around his massive neck, Wally is led to the post of his execution. His legs are splayed and tied in place so that he cannot run. The sun is hot. A row of National Guard sharpshooters forms a line in front of him. Wally is 28, and he's been a circus performer all his life. A slave, a captive, a runaway, a fugitive in a land far from home, whose 40-day chase and eventual capture made international headlines a decade before. He'd had his name changed twice. For most of his life, he was Charlie Ed, and two days prior to being tied here, Charlie Ed had, with the force of his own lumbering body, smashed the ribs, legs, and spine of one Mr. Edward Brown. It's not known what passed through the mind of Charlie Ed that day, either on the one of his murderous rampage or now, on this sunny afternoon in Southern California, with the officer's rifles raised. The Biological Science Building at the University of Alberta is an Escher drawing of a place, like some early circle of hell where the punishment is just annoying. If you stumble through it long enough, you'll find the William Rowan Laboratory. It's a mausoleum, brimming with bodies, skeletons of lynx and camel and human being, a gibbon in a glass case, the artichoke plates of an armadillo, a narwhal tusk as long as a VW. Busts of moose and elk leaning out from the wall, boxes of birds and webbed feet, pieces of jaw, jars with frogs frozen in time, all tagged and labeled with their Latin names. Everything in its place, everything held it with pins and resin and formaldehyde and staples and stuffing. Every eyeball replaced with a marble. On one of the metal tables near the front of the long room rests a behemoth skull, 60 pounds of thick bone, black and smooth from decades of hands touching it. Its Latin name, Elephus Maximus Indicus. In life, her name was Myrtle. In 1926, Myrtle belonged to the Cells Flotto Circus, the second biggest in the world. It had death-defying trapeze artists, jungle-born killers, tigers, lions, comedians on horseback, camel riders, hundreds of dancing girls, according to their poster, and elephants. Fourteen of them, to be exact. They could do magic tricks, fling water, blow a trumpet sound, and dance. Among the most talented of the performing pachyderms were Myrtle and Charlie Ed, who, having been captured from the wild rather than born into the circus, also had a propensity for rebellion. It's been said that well-behaved women rarely make history. The Great Elephant Hunt of 1926 shows us that the same could probably be said of elephants. The sun rose on August 6th, 1926, and the Sells Flotto Circus pulled into Edmonton. 
They had two main advertising strategies, a postering blitz and a parade, where they'd trot their wares down a central street, ornate carriages bearing waving women or snarling jungle cats pacing in a cage, all pulled by horses or camels or elephants. As the crowds gathered on that warm summer morning, a yapping terrier spooked Mary, a 3,000-pound Indian elephant, sending her and the others into a fit that broke them free from their carriages and careening down Jasper Avenue. It took two days for the circus men to round the elephants up again, and when they finally did, the damages were tallied and severe. Street fixtures smashed, fences caved, trees snapped, crops flattened. A little girl who busted her arm diving out of the way. Despite the chaos, the show went on, starting on time and packing up as soon as they could for their next show in Calgary. At 8.25 a.m. on August 3rd, 1926, the massive circus train screamed into the Canadian Pacific Railway Yards near what is now the Calgary Stampede Grounds. And Stampede is just what they did all over again. The leader once again was Mad Mary, a nickname she'd been given recently, which was possibly related to the undiagnosed tumors in her brain. Also among the escapees were the other rebels of the pack, Myrtle and Charlie Ed. The smallest of them and the youngest, his name was Charlie Ed. He was also the most popular of them. He was kind of the, the clown of them. After hearing of the rampage in Calgary, the editor of the Edmonton Bulletin wrote an opinion piece arguing for the removal of elephants from circuses altogether. His reasoning? They were a danger to public safety. If one dog can so demoralize a band of pachyderms that they thereafter break for freedom whenever occasion offers, the noisy street of a modern city is not a safe place for a whole menagerie of assorted monsters to march, however watched and tended they are. And watched and tended they were. Surveillance was tightened, and at the next tour stops in Lethbridge and Blairmore, Sells Flotto forewent the customary pre-show parade and made no mention of the incidents in Calgary or Edmonton. The shows went off without a hitch. And then they came to Cranbrook. In the first light of morning on August 6, 1926, the colossal circus locomotive pulled into the CPR stockyards in Cranbrook, B.C., a quaint little cloister cupped in the vast valley between the Purcell Mountains and the Rockies. The area was plagued by three wildfires at the time, so the air was choked with ash. Here's Maddie Wallace from the Cranbrook History Center. When they were loading the elephants off of the train, something spooked them, and they're not sure if it was an animal noise or the smoke from the fires that were going on, but something spooked them, and all 14 elephants started stampeding through town. Crashing out of the stockyards and spilling out into the sleepy little town in the deep, dense woods that surrounded it. This time, though, it wasn't Mad Mary who led the jailbreak. This time, it was Myrtle and Charlie Ed. Every capable circus worker was deployed to search for the Grey Giants, on foot and horseback, with guns and binoculars and telegrams. They managed to round up most of the runaways within the first day or so. Seven of them were corralled in the local cemetery. Here's local historian Jim Cameron. Uh, the local dispatcher for the CPR, that's to say the telegraph operator, 
um, he got a little worried that, you know, the trains uh, might actually run into an elephant on the track. So he sent out a, a, a telegram to the west towards Vancouver and said, uh, you know, there's uh, watch for elephants on the tracks, basically, is what it said. It, it was pretty succinct. It was just, uh, yeah, watch for elephants on the tracks, which was crazy uh, to anybody that got a telegram. You know, they didn't have a clue why there were elephants on the, possibly um, marauding around you know, the wilds of British Columbia. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of forget, but the telegraph was really similar to texting today. Uh, it was fast, and it was uh, accurate. And, you know, as soon as uh, a few of the operators towards the east west coast picked up on it, even just for a lark, they started sending this telegram to uh, you know, other centers around North America just saying, hey, look what we got. And the thing went viral. I mean, it went viral really quickly. Within 24 hours, there was uh, newspapers, reporters, uh, radio reporters headed to Cranbrook to find out what the heck was going on with the elephants uh, running wild in our, in our fair city. But after a week of intense searching, three elephants remained on the lamb. Myrtle, Charlie Ed, and Tilly. Tilly was the first one captured. And they found her not too far from Cranbrook here. Um, she'd been shot, but unfortunately, uh, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, I suppose more fortunately, it takes a very large gun to bring down an elephant, and uh, there wasn't really anything of that nature in Cranbrook. And what happened was people were actually hunting the elephants, really for more for a lark than anything. And if they saw them, they'd shoot at them, and, and all that would happen was the bullet would embed itself in the elephant you know, it caused problems with infections and things, but it certainly, certainly didn't stop the elephant. Tilly was the oldest of the bunch, and she was maternal, cooperative, and generally trusted by the other members of the herd. After the stampede in Edmonton, Mad Mary was the last elephant to be found. The circus men used Tilly as a decoy to coax Mary out of her hiding place and back into captivity. In Cranbrook, Tilly was once again deployed as a decoy in areas where Charlie Ed and Myrtle had been spotted. This time, though, it didn't work. On August 26th, Tilly was loaded back onto a train car, the ticket for which was $1,200, and taken south to catch up with the tour. Two still on the run, Myrtle and Charlie Ed. is on the land of the Tanaha First Nation, whose name in the Tanaha language means deep, dense woods. It was their knowledge of the landscape that made them invaluable to the circus, who hired them to search for the fugitive beasts. The Great Cranbrook Elephant Hunt, as it was coming to be called in newspapers across the continent, ultimately cost the circus over half a million dollars and employed more than a hundred people. The Tanaha trackers were led by a woman whose name remains unknown. All that's known about her is that she was a relative of another tracker on the team called Gus Williams, and that she hung a sack of apples from the pommel of her saddle, and that she used the apples to bait the elephants to follow her. At first, the Tanaha's contribution to the hunt was downplayed by the Selsflato Circus, who had their reputation to protect. An article in the Cranbrook Herald of August 19th puts it like this. Certain reporters would indicate that the Indians caught Tilly the elephant that was brought into the city on Sunday. 
The fact is that J. Dooley, head keeper of the Sells Flotto Company, was the person responsible for the capture. All that the others than the elephant men have done so far has been to attain the location of the lost animals and direct the elephant men thereto. None of them, however, getting within a considerable distance of any one of them so far. The Tanaha have since been vindicated, and an incomplete list of the Tanaha involved are Gus and his unidentified apple-tossing relative, as well as Chris Joseph, Michael Michelle, Terry Timothy, Seymour Williams, Abe Sebastian, Mary Janet, and someone known simply as Abel or Abel. The circus finally decided to bring in a big gun to help with the hunt, a world-renowned elephant trainer named Cheerful Frank Gardner, also humbly referred to as Lord High Controller. Gardner was flown in from Wichita, Kansas, but after hitting a particularly violent patch of turbulence over Colorado, the flight was grounded, and Gardner had no choice but to carry on by train, abandoning the plane that was supposed to help aid in the search. Weeks passed, the hunt intensified and then abated, and still Charlie, Ed, and Myrtle evaded capture. Sightings were reported from every direction, as close as the outskirts of town and as far as Yak, some 67 kilometers away. It is likely that some of the sightings were false, made by people hoping for some portion of the reward money, but whatever the case, Charlie, Ed, and Myrtle were usually sighted together. Charlie, Ed, and Myrtle are fond of each other, almost, almost jealous of each other, said Zach Terrell, manager of the Sells Floater Circus at the time. They've got lots to eat and drink up in the wilds and apparently take little jaunts of 30 miles or so to the mountains and then move on toward a creek for a drink. Soon, however, the warmth of August slid into the chill of September. And when Tanaha trackers finally found Myrtle some 30 days after she led the great escape, she was all alone. When Gardner's men closed in around her on September the 8th, 1926, Myrtle resisted their advances with all the strength she had left. According to the Spokane Spokesman Review, she had become a wild animal. She charged through British Columbia forests with uprooted saplings in her trunk and attacked her hunters. Despite her resistance, Myrtle was in very rough shape. Her toenails were chipped off, her knees were broken, her frame emaciated, and she walked with a bad limp, probably from the two or three bullets lodged in her side. At first, the men tried to clear a path out of the dense woods to guide her to a road and back into town, but Myrtle wouldn't budge. She was also suffering from pneumonia. And so, after much deliberation, the circus men decided it best to kill her. But none of their weapons were powerful enough to do the job. J. Francis Guimont, the telegraph operator who first sent the telegraph about the elephants on the tracks, happened to own an old Wesley Richards Express elephant rifle, a relic from the Boer War. And so he was designated executioner and brought out to the base of Moye Mountain, where Myrtle lay dying. But by this time, Myrtle had become an international icon, a hero in an inhuman form. So he couldn't do it. He couldn't squeeze the trigger. To this day, it's unclear exactly how Myrtle died. Perhaps it was pneumonia, perhaps it was the bullet holes in her side. All I know is that there are no bullet holes in the skull that rests in the William Rowan lab. Nellie's 
skinned her and uh, obviously took her, her skull because uh, you folks have that in Edmonton. And they brought the skin back and it was displayed in uh, one of the uh, store windows here for a number of weeks. And that's how some of the skin ended up over at the uh, railway museum here. And they left, uh, they left uh, most of the carcass up in the hills. In fact, for years around Cranbrook, uh, one of the regular Boy Scout treks was to uh, head up the mountain to uh, where the elephant bones were, and they'd camp up there overnight. <laughs> I'm sure tell the story of the great elephant hunt, but uh, there's there's nothing left of that now. Three days after Myrtle's death, the last remaining elephant was spotted at Lumberton, a tiny hamlet a few kilometers from where Myrtle passed away. On September 14, 1926, after six weeks of arduous searching, they finally found Charlie Ed. This is from an article that ran in the Cranbrook Courier on September 16, 1926. Charlie Ed was in no wise mind to leave the woods when trailed down by his keepers and their Indian assistants. He put up a fight. Charlie Front Door Morgan and Spot Griffin have testified to Charlie Ed's pugnaciousness and are carrying bruises to support their evidence. The little elephant promptly knocked his keepers down when they approached him to fetter his feet. His eyes blazed with the light of battle. But the men had had experience in their chase of the ill-fated myrtle. They took no further chances. And the Indians who had guided them to Charlie Ed's hideout were well versed in the ways of wild things. The Indians constructed a snare in a jiffy. Getting directly in front of the little elephant, they dared him to come on. And on he came, running straight into the makeshift noose, which tightened the harder he fought. Time and again he was thrown back on his haunches by the spring of the sapling trees he was tied to, the hard cord biting deeper into his neck the more he fought it, choking him into submission. After 40 days of struggle, the great Cranbrook elephant hunt had finally come to a close. circus uh, had been long gone. They were planning on coming through again, maybe towards the end of September. So they asked if uh, if Charlie Ed could um, hold up in town here for till they got back. So we kept him in our uh, old arena, which worked out really well because that was also uh, the site of our fall fair. So the folks, uh, we had a we had a very successful fall fair. People came from all over, uh, not so much to see our vegetables, but to see our elephant. In fact, the last day in town, the mayor uh, led him uh, through the downtown section there and took him to a, uh, a local restaurant where they brought out tray after tray of sandwiches, which he happily ate. And Mayor Kim Roberts liked him so much that they christened him during the Cranbrook Fall Festival as Cranbrook Ed, literally pouring a bottle of champagne over the elephant's head. They put him on a uh, rail car and sent him off to join the circus. And that was effectively the last, uh, last of Cranbrook's off of Cranbrook Ed. There's a bit of a sad code of this story that doesn't always get told, actually. Uh, in the 1930s, probably around 1936, uh, the circus, Sal's Circus, sold Cranbrook Ed to a zoo in San Francisco. 
This was kind of standard procedure for elephants who had grown too old or ornery for the performing life. At the zoo, Charlie Ed was given a new name, Wally. On July 16, 1938, for reasons that remain unknown, Charlie Ed turned on his trainer, Edward Brown, and brutally stomped his ribs and spine, pulverizing his skull and shaking him till he was still. Two days later, Charlie Ed was led by thick ropes to a wooden fence where he was bound with two legs off the ground to prevent him from running. Behind the fence, the other elephants stood watching as a row of police sharpshooters leveled their guns with Charlie's tired head. Charlie Ed was shot dead on July 18, 1938. Death had been the one thing that finally set him free. And so ends the saga of Myrtle and Charlie Ed. Runaways in a hopeless situation. Bonnie and Clyde before Bonnie and Clyde ever met. And maybe I'm playing up the whole Bonnie and Clyde thing, exaggerating the romance for dramatic effect. The truth is, we don't know that much about Myrtle or Charlie Ed or about their relationship. They were elephants. They couldn't speak. But what if they could? What if in some way, in, in their way, they did? It's been shown that elephants are one of the most intelligent, social, emotional, and psychologically complicated creatures on the planet. They mourn their dead. They protect the vulnerable. They show empathy. And as the cliche tells us, possibly because they've got one of the biggest brain-to-body size ratios of any mammal on the planet, they never forget. Myrtle and Charlie Ed are known to have been particularly fond of each other. They played together, they stuck together, they trusted each other. And in the late summer of 1926, they ran away together, in an adventure that captured the attention of a continent. You know, it's one of the few times that in those days that Cranbrook was even noticed as a city, it was really kind of a feather in Cranbrook's cap, really, because uh, uh, just for a few days in August 1926, the name Cranbrook, British Columbia, was bouncing around the world, you know, a lot of reporters coming in. And, yeah, it was just kind of the, hey, hey, look it up. We had an elephant stampede. Before she was skinned and her body used as bear bait, Myrtle's captors took a picture of her body. Her emaciated carcass rests on its side, with a man, ostensibly from the circus, standing over her, with the caption, You're a good elephant now, scrawled over the photograph. Today, Myrtle's skull rests in the William Rowan lab at the University of Alberta, where it has helped teach students for more than 90 years. And there it will remain, its surface worn smooth and black from time and touch, the last remaining relic of the great Cranbrook elephant hunt. The music for this program was provided by Derek Plunkey, and it was written and produced by me, Anthony Gertz. I'd like to thank CJSR, Tara Informa, and Chris Chang-Yan Phillips. 
I am indebted to the research and writing of Gordon Brown, Earl Chapin May, Nicholas DeChase, T.W. Patterson, and Anna Majkowski, and the people at the Columbia Basin Institute of Regional History, as well as Margaret Tanise from the Tanaha Nation Council Office. The interviews you heard were with Maddie Wallace from the Cranbrook History Center and local historian Jim Cameron. Thanks to Braden Barr from the U of A's Biological Science Department for introducing me to the story, and to Christine Weisenthal for taking us on a field trip there. Thanks for listening. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks to this week's contributors, Anthony Goritz, Shelley Jodwin, Amanda Rooney, and Sydney Carbonic. I've been your host, Ashley Cochis. Catch you next week.